Well, hey everyone, uh, welcome in. If this is your first time, my name is Chip. I'm the lead pastor here at The Orchard. And if you've been with us for the last several weeks specifically, we have been going through this series we're calling Sensitive, which we're really unpacking what we believe about sin. And I just want to say this as we get started today, that if you've been with us for the first two weeks of this series, uh, it has not been the most uplifting series to this point, right? And that may be true every time we talk about sin, but if you've been tracking with us, you're probably at the point where you're thinking, man, like, this is a big deal. I'm just beat down. I'm a wreck. And that's probably how you should be feeling if you've been tracking where we are for the last two weeks. But I want to encourage you to hang on because today we're going to take a turn. And today I think this series really does turn back toward hope that we're going to end on next week. But in order for you to see that, let's kind of take just a second as we get started and recap where we've been and what we've been talking about so far in this series. Um, We began the series by saying really simply that the point of all this is we want to see sin the way that God sees sin. And specifically, we want to see our sin the way that God sees our sin. Because I think too often, though the world, the culture uh, has an awareness of sin, too often we're tempted to see sin just as a religious or cultural offense, or maybe even more likely just to see sin as a mistake. But that's not how God sees sin. God sees sin, we said this in the first week, as an objective violation of his law, uh, as a pervasive, uh, a pervasive part of our lives affecting every person and all of who we are. And, and more than that, we saw that sin was, was deadly. And so what we're saying is this, and we said this was really the point of the first week, is that sin is serious and we have to take sin seriously. We have to kill our sin before our sin winds up killing us. And the issue is that even though we may understand all of this about sin, we only really feel that to be true about big sins. And so that's what we talked about last week, right? Last week in Romans chapter one, we saw Paul list many respectable sins that we don't feel are deadly. We saw him list sins like gossip, pride, disobedience toward parents in the same breath of many sins that seem to be far worse, such as murder, God-hating, and sexual sin. And I think, honestly, when we hear that, it can be a shock to our system. Like That can't, that can't really be true, right? It can't be that gossip and God-hating are on the same level. It just doesn't seem like it can be right. But in God's eyes, what we said last week is all sin is serious, and all sin is deadly, whether we see it or not. But uh, that kind of brings us to where we are today, right? Um, even these small, seemingly insignificant, seemingly harmless sins are deadly, but then why is it that some sins really do seem to be worse than others, right? Like you would, you would rather somebody, you know, steal from a store than, you know, hijack an airplane. Like why, do, why the difference there? Why do we see some sins as bigger, worse than others? Um, well, what I would say is this, some sins seem worse than others because honestly they are. Um, Now, they're not worse in their penalty or in their consequence, right? Because every sin leads to death. Every sin is deadly. That death is separation from God. However, our sins can be seen as better or worse, not by the ultimate consequence and penalty of that sin, but by the heinousness of that sin. And that word heinous is not really a word that we use a whole lot, but I think it's very appropriate in this context, talking about the heinousness of certain sins. That is the level of wickedness or vileness of certain sins. Um, and I think that the heinousness of sin can be 
greater or lesser. And we really see that heinousness primarily in a few, uh, a few factors. I think number one, a sin is either more or less heinous when you look at the victim or the person who's been most harmed by that sin, right? Uh, we joked about this in, in our sermon prep meeting with our pastors. You know, you would rather see someone uh, punch an adult man in the face than somebody punch a toddler in the face. Why? You're just punching somebody in the face both times. Well, one is a victim who can handle himself, and the other is a vulnerable victim. So the victim of our sins uh, make our sin more or less heinous. Um, The level of harm done by that sin makes it more or less heinous. When you punch that person, do they have a black eye, or do they lose an eye because you shattered their eye socket? right? The level of harm that that sin does can make it more or less heinous. Um, I think a, a different direction, sins can be seen as more or less heinous based on the, the perception of which they go against the natural order, right? God created the world and there is an order to the world. And when sins break outside of the natural created order and they go against God's uh, revealed order of nature, they can seem very heinous. I think maybe uh, one of these that has been seen uh, culturally uh, uh, throughout history is cannibalism, right? Why is that so wicked and vile? Well, because it goes against nature. That's not what God intended. And then maybe uh, the, the last way that we see the heinousness of certain sins is the level to which that sin is blasphemous or sacrilegious, right? When, when that sin is intentionally an affront to God to demean or displace him, we see that as a far more heinous sin. So while all sins are deadly, I think that we do have to admit that there are uh, certain degrees of heinousness that sins have. Some are uh, seem worse than others. Um, but the truth is they, they all carry the same penalty, and that is death. Um, now, talking about this, this idea of a sin spectrum, right? Where, where do we get that? Where is it from? Is there such thing as a sin spectrum? Not in its penalty, maybe yes in its vileness. Uh, but maybe some of you are even thinking, well, well, hold on, hold on a second, Chip. Doesn't the Bible talk about like one sin, like that's an unforgivable sin? Isn't that somewhere in Scripture? Um, Yeah, it is. There is, in fact, uh, a scripture where Jesus himself says that this is the unforgivable sin. Let's go there. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Mark chapter 3. And in Mark chapter 3, we see Jesus talk about this in verse 28. This is what Jesus says. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, right? So boom, that is a bigger sin, right? It's an unforgivable sin. Um, So what what is this sin? This sin, uh, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, has been speculated about by a lot of people throughout the years. Uh, Many people just kind of wondering exactly what that means, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I think more people... uh, thinking about it because they're hoping they haven't already committed it and just never realized it, right? I don't want to have done that, not know it, and now I can never be forgiven. Um, so, so let's just take a minute and be clear about what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit means and why it's unforgivable. 
Uh, so when we look here, Jesus is talking to a group of unbelievers, specifically religious leaders, uh, who are denying who he is as the Son of God who has come into the world to save the world. And, and when we understand that context, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit um, becomes a little bit clearer, right? Uh, so this idea, the sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, has been widely and historically understood to mean that it is the deliberate rejection of the convicting word of the Holy Spirit that calls a person to turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus, right? Jesus is the Son of God sent to the world to save the world after he was crucified, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit. And now the primary function of the Holy Spirit in the church age now is to point to Jesus. The Spirit never points to the Spirit. The Spirit always points to Jesus. He's to shine a spotlight on Jesus. He's to lift up Jesus. And one of the primary ways he does that is by convicting the lost person, the unbeliever, over their sin and through his work and conviction, leading them to faith in Christ. And so this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not saying something bad about the Holy Spirit. It's not taking God's name in vain. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is rejecting the convicting work of the Holy Spirit that would lead a person to put their faith in Jesus. And then when you begin to understand that, you see now why the sin truly is unforgivable. The reason that this sin is unforgivable is not that God is unwilling to forgive the person, but that the person who rejects the convicting work of the Spirit is rejecting the only means by which they can be saved. So it's not that God is saying, oh, no, you did that. You're done. You're out. You're over. That's not the point. The point is, is that when we blaspheme the Holy Spirit, basically saying that what you're convicting me of in my heart is not true, you're a liar, I don't believe any of that, and turn from Jesus, when we turn from Jesus, we make the sin unforgivable because we're rejecting the only way that we can be forgiven. And what I really love here, once you kind of understand that, is that in this passage, Jesus isn't teaching that there are certain sins that can't be forgiven He's teaching the opposite, that every sin can be forgiven. Every sin will be forgiven as long as we accept the only means of that forgiveness. And that is his blood sacrifice on the cross. Well then, maybe, uh, maybe your mind's already racing ahead and you're kind of on to the next thing. Okay, so if we you know, receive that conviction of the Holy Spirit and, and confess our sins and repent of our sins, you know, then we're saved. But what about, what about sins that I haven't asked forgiveness for? And I think maybe this is something that touches home in our neck of the woods here where we're located in the deep south, specifically north central Florida. Um, what about sins I haven't asked forgiveness for? Uh, Because there are some Christians and some denominations that advocate if a believer has any unconfessed sin in their life, that they can't go to heaven. So for instance, I may be a Christian. I may have been following Jesus for years. My wife and I get into a fight. I lose my temper. In anger, I say things I should not say. I drive out of the house in a rage and get in a wreck and die. Though I may have asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins, though I may have trusted him as my savior, though I may have been baptized and a faithful member of my local church, if I did not confess that anger and temper and blowing up before God and say, God, forgive me of it, if I don't confess that before I get hit by a car, some would say, well, then Chip, 
he can't get to heaven. Um, that idea that even after we've trusted Jesus as Savior, if we don't ask forgiveness for specific sins, uh, that we won't be forgiven and ultimately we'll go to hell. I think that stems primarily from a misunderstanding of 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 9. If you got your Bible, flip there. Let's read that because I think this is where that comes from. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says this, If we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so people who may say that if we don't confess our sins, they can't be forgiven, what they do is they look at this verse and they say, well, Chip, it says, if we confess our sins. Not, uh, you know, if you don't confess your sins, you'll be forgiven. It says, if we confess our sins, we'll be forgiven. But does this verse really say that if we don't confess our specific sins, that they can't be forgiven? No, I, I don't think so. I don't think that's what this passage teaches. Um, I, I don't think that's what it teaches at all. Interestingly enough, there are no verses that teach that there is a system where believers have to, every time they sin, ask God to forgive that sin in order to activate his forgiveness. Um, I think what uh, 1 John 1.9 means is that it is a one time when we are lost and the Spirit convicts us of our sin and points us to Jesus to be saved. It is a confessing of our sin. That word confess really literally means, if you take the two parts of the Greek word, to say the same thing about. We say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin is that Hey, look, because of my sin, I can't get into heaven. Because of my sin, I can't be in your presence. I need you to forgive me of my sin. It is saying that if we confess that sin to Jesus, he will forgive it. And that's what he says. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not just specific unrighteousness, but all unrighteousness. I think if 1 John 1, 9 meant what a lot of people think it means, that you have to confess every specific sin or they can't be forgiven, then you got to ask, why didn't Paul talk about it in any of his letters? Why didn't James talk about it in any of his letters? Why didn't Jesus talk about it in any of his teachings? Wouldn't this like be a really big deal? Yeah, it would. But I think the truth is 1 John 1, 9 has been severely misunderstood by many Christians and denominations. It has caused all kind of confusion and honestly anxiety in Christians' lives. Um, I think when we look at this verse, it can be applied uh, more to unbelievers than to Christians. It is about those who say, look, we need to confess our sin uh, once for all that we are sinners so that we may be forgiven. He's saying that if they confess their sin, you will be forgiven of all unrighteousness. Now, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. Uh, this is in no way suggesting that confessing our sin to God is bad. That as Christians, we should not confess our sin to God. We should confess our sins to God. That's been a, a part of this entire series. That's how we kill our sin. We, we don't run away from God and hide it. We don't try to fix it ourselves, but we run to God and asking him to forgive by confessing our sin. Uh, and again, like I said, it's not wrong to confess your sin and ask forgiveness for those specific sins. But listen, it is wrong. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you have been given new life, if you are saved, if you ask for forgiveness because you think you don't have it, that's where we get this wrong. See, as followers of Jesus, we should confess our sins to God, but not so that they can be forgiven again. When you were saved, Jesus didn't just forgive the sins in your past. He forgave the sins in your past and the ones that are coming in your future. 
When you're washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, you're not just washed clean only to get dirty again. You're washed clean, covered once for all forever. When God sees you, He doesn't see you. He sees Jesus in your place. So we don't confess our sins just so that we can be forgiven of those specific sins. We come to Jesus in repentance and faith. We're already forgiven. That reconfession of those specific sins is just a normal part of our Christian walk. It's how we grow in our relationship with Jesus. Let me say it again. Once we are forgiven, we are forgiven once and for all. To say otherwise overlooks a mountain of Scripture. It overlooks how the early church understood the gospel. It's just not what the Scriptures teach and the churches always believe. When we are forgiven, when we come to Christ in repentance and faith, we are forgiven once for all, forever. I think what, what has wound up happening is that too often when, when many Christians ask forgiveness for specific sins to initiate or to activate forgiveness, they're really going back to a, a new model of the Old Testament sacrificial system where Israel would, every time they committed a new sin, would have to sacrifice bulls and goats over and over and over for the removal of that new sin. But listen, when Jesus came, he did away with that sacrificial sin that sacrificial system for sin, once and for all. That system that had to be repeated over and over, Jesus completed it. He finished it. He fulfilled it. Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Or maybe uh, even more pointedly, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10, starting verse 11, says, Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And he is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, the Lord says. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful and let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see today approaching. It's one of my favorite passages in the book of Hebrews. Because what he's saying is this, that when Jesus died for your sins, he made payment for those sins, that they could be forgiven and washed away. Past sins, present sins, future sins, gone. And we don't have to have this new sacrificial system where every time we commit a new sin, we have to activate that forgiveness one more time by saying the right words or being very remorse. No, when you come to Christ 
in repentance and faith. When you ask for forgiveness that first time and you surrender your life to him, you are made new forever. And so now, even when we sin, even when we fall, we don't have to come to him dirty and sorry and broken. We come to him with boldness by his blood, knowing that we are already forgiven and asking him to continue to transform us into his image. I think if that still doesn't make sense, then, then maybe there's a question you need to be asking. And that is, where does your forgiveness come from? Does your forgiveness come from your words when you sin? Or does it come from Jesus' sacrifice? Or, or maybe if I were to ask it differently, does your forgiveness come from what you do? Or does it come from what Jesus has done? So I want to be clear here, lest you misunderstand me. I want to be very clear. There has to be a moment that where, through God's Word, by the Holy Spirit, He brings conviction of our sin and of our lostness into us. We are convicted that we are sinners uh, that deserve death before God and that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. And in that moment, when that conviction comes over us, the Holy Spirit also points us to Jesus. And we see Him and His sacrifice on the cross, what He has done for us so that we may be forgiven, that He was on our cross and our place to take our punishment for our sin. And when you see that, your lostness and Jesus' sacrifice, and for the first time in that moment, you respond humbly and sincerely, repenting of your sin and of your self-righteousness, and you put your faith and trust in Jesus and his work on your behalf, in that moment, you are saved. You are forgiven. You are made righteous forever. But... If that hasn't happened yet, if you just go to church when you can or watch online when you can't, if you try to be a good person and, and do the best you can, if you try to pray every night before you go to bed, but you've never had that moment, then you are still separated from God and destined for an eternity apart from Him in hell. I need, you, I need you to hear that because some of you, this isn't making sense because you've never had that moment where you've truly been saved, where you've truly been convicted and you surrendered it all to Jesus. But if that moment has happened and if there's something in your life you've not confessed, you're still forgiven. You're still righteous and you are still headed for an eternity with God in heaven. So, by all means, take your sin to Jesus. Ah, that's the point of this series, right? Take your sin to Jesus. Yes, feel remorse over them and run to God in your brokenness. But more than anything, know that when Jesus gave his life on the cross, it accomplished everything that you would ever need to be made right with God forever. Past, present, future sins are all forgiven. Big sins, small sins, remembered no more, removed from the record books. Why? Because what the blood of bulls and lambs could not do, what our words could never do, 
Jesus did. He saved us from our sins. And next week, we're going to look at just what that means. Let me pray for you. God, thanks for being here today. Thanks for meeting us in this place. Thanks for speaking to us through your word by your spirit. So God, I pray now that you would speak clearly to those who have never had that moment where they've been saved. God, would you help them see their sin and would you help them see your sacrifice? And when they see those things, would they respond in repentance and faith, trusting you once for all as their savior? God, and for those who do know you as Savior, would you help us see that? That that we have been saved, we have received forgiveness, and that we would learn to live in that forgiveness. Not running away from you, not stressed out and anxious over whether or not we have confessed every single specific sin, because God, I know that there's sins in my life I probably don't even realize are there yet. But God, as we are reminded of just how forgiven we are, would you bring us to the place that that does not give us a license to sin, but it gives us a desire to walk more in grace. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.